I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I realize that like, I mean, as a writer, you don't know what you're doing for a really long time. (laughs) You know, it's like, you throw this at the wall and somebody's like, that's great. And then you throw that at the wall and they're like, that's terrible. And you feel like you're doing the exact same thing, but you don't really know for a long time what's happening. So I think this is the best way I can describe what happened, but I don't really know. (laughs) I just remember thinking that I wasn't sad that they were laughing and that the best thing you could do with a piece of fiction was actually to make somebody laugh. And I still think that's true. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Sally Solomon is the author of two novels, Disgruntled, published in 2015, and her most recent book, The Days of Afrikiti, which was published last year. The Days of Afrikiti takes place at a dinner party thrown in Philadelphia by Lizelle, a Black woman whose white husband recently lost a state election and is soon to be disgraced by an FBI investigation. Lizelle's husband doesn't know yet that he's under investigation. And as she struggles to keep up the facade of domestic calm, she finds herself thinking about Selena, a girl she dated in college many years earlier. Selena has spent her adult life in and out of psychiatric institutions. It's an incredibly beautiful, detailed novel that draws a lot from Mrs. Dalloway, among other books. Um, And these are characters in various kinds of strained or difficult situations, which is why I was surprised and really delighted that Solomon wanted to talk about a moment that changed her writing life, the realization that her writing is funny. We had a great conversation about humor in writing and teaching, and I hope you enjoy as much as I did. 
Here's Asali Solomon. So when I was a first year in college, I took my first uh, fiction writing class. I mean, I had done some writing in high school, mainly poetry. And I was writing these stories that were kind of like, uh, you know, the characters were named things like Asali Solomon. <laughs> I was calling them stories, but they weren't really. And I wrote this one about this girl named Asali who like walked down the street and like somebody, maybe a homeless person or something said something to her and she felt frightened and lonely and went home. And I thought it was like this really moody, tragic character study And back then in workshops, you had to read your work aloud and people would comment on it like that was the workshop process and everybody laughed. And at first I was like kind of mortified, you know, and then, you know, people sort of started, I mean, they weren't like, it it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty friendly class. It wasn't like a, Uh, you know, it wasn't like one of these mean cutthroat situations. And they would sort of start quoting lines. And the teacher, um, the professor's name was Elizabeth Dalton. She was like a great booster of mine there at Barnard. Um, And they were just like, yeah, I mean, the humor. And then I was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) This is what we're doing, right? And honestly, like, and then, I just, that was kind of the moment where I realized kind of what our, A, that I, you know, it was sort of like an escalation of my interest in fiction writing, but B, I realized that the thing that I could do that a lot of people couldn't do was sort of be funny about things that in a lot of ways weren't very funny. Um, And that has continued to be like a big part of what I do and not in the way that like, you know, just like clowning in a tragic way for other people or anything like that. But I sort of just realized that there are ways to get at different kinds of experiences sort of with humor that wouldn't really necessarily make them any more, any less sad, right. Or any less poignant, but that it was like a different way of experiencing, um, certain kinds of experiences. And, you know, I I think that um, some of the things I went on to write about um, were often moments when, like, they were built on experiences I had when I felt like a stranger in a strange land. You know, that's like a really big part of what I write about. And often, like, a big part of that is looking at, like, the humor of that in a way that makes it, you know, that, that can make it sort of sadder sometimes. I mean, in a lot, in a big way, like funny was like my God, right? Like, um, you know, from a, I had a, I had a best friend, um, from like fourth grade up for a while. And like, that was, that was our thing. It was like things that were funny, you know, it was just like, um, instead of other modes, like it was like kind of just trying to figure out ways to make each other laugh or laugh at the world, that kind of thing. But I hadn't thought about it in connection necessarily with writing. And I mean, like I'm making this sound more, um, my relationship to writing sound more serious than it was at that time. I think at that time, 
you know, I just, I was kind of like, I took a, I took a drama acting class. I took a writing class. You know, I wasn't thinking necessarily that that's where it was going. Although when I look back on my life from, you know, childhood, when I was raised by these parents who were really into fiction writing, particularly my mom taught, you know, like had us reading all these books, um, novels by women of color. It seems like it was very overdetermined that I became a fiction writer. But at the time it was more like I was, I think I was as a writer, I mean, that's really like formal term for what was happening. I thought the goal was to like, I don't know, be serious and make people, I don't know, make people pay attention by virtue of something solemn. Or once I had written like a horror story or that, you know, um, and I, I don't think, and I read things and enjoyed things that were funny, but I don't think I thought that that was something that I would be able to do. Although I was certainly able to be funny in some ways in real life. I just didn't connect the two. Yeah. Did you have, like, who did you, when you were talking with your best friend, who was your, who did you think was funny? Like, what was your style of humor or what kind of, who did you think was, was so, was kind of like doing humor in the best way? I mean, I didn't even really think about it like that. We just would have these very elaborate jokes about the things that interested us. So if it was like different, you know, like celebrities or pop stars, just like elaborate joke cycles about like George Michael or whatever. I mean, it was, <laughs> or just kind of like making fun of like people who were in our class, like their different personas and that kind of thing. Like, I don't remember thinking about like, I mean, obviously it was the eighties, like Eddie Murphy was funny. Delirious was funny. Um, just that kind of like basic humor. Uh, but I don't like, <laughs> I remember, um, I thought something I remember thinking was really funny at the time was, uh, anything kind of absurd. Like the Chris Elliott, who I think started on David Letterman had a show called get a life that I thought was very funny. Like that kind of, um, it was an early parody, like early abject parody before abject parody became a big thing like that kind of thing. And also I just think that a lot of people in my family were very funny. Um, they were just funny storytellers or that kind of thing. I hadn't really thought about it in this, the way you're talking about as like a professional aesthetic or anything like that. Um, and certainly I didn't really know about like the kind of humor that I started basically generating, you know, um, as a writer yeah, I think I didn't ask that question very well because I definitely am also uh, what part of what I wanted to know is if you if your family was funny or if your family laughed a lot or just oh, like where yeah. laughter sat for you and what provoked it at yeah. that time in your life. Right. So they are funny. Um everybody's kind of funny in their different way. The my mother um was raised with four brothers and they all you know, when we would get together, they would sort of all sort of tell loud stories. The funniest was my uncle Richard, who incidentally was the founding manager of the Roots. And he would just like, 
just completely inappropriate humor. <laughs> just like completely just these stories about people. Or I mean, I remember even kind of like he passed away a few years ago, but I remember like even a little bit before that, he was like talking about one of my cousins. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I really thought she was going to go to jail. Like, I don't even, I can't duplicate any of it for you, but it was like, but also there was a high premium on making people laugh at various family gatherings. Um, and so that was, so, and that was something that like me and my sister sort of, when I think about it now, like that was something that we really honed to like a high art form to this day. Um, like really just trying to make people laugh at these, you know, at like family gatherings. But I think that, you know, I think, I don't think about it a lot in these terms, but I do also remember that early on somebody gave me, it might've been my uncle actually, um, a collection of Langston Hughes, simple stories. So Langston Hughes, the poet wrote these, um, he called them simple stories. And it was about this, like every man character, Jesse B. Simple called himself simple. And they were mainly like these dialogue stories that would have, um, would sort of talk about certain kinds of issues, but, they were, it was a certain kind of really just um, extremely humorous, you know? And so I think that was the one place I had seen like, okay, actual, this is what humor is. But all none of these things really were clear in my consciousness as like uh, influences, you know, when I right. turned to thinking about how to be funny, but they were all there. Yeah, so when you first uh, realized, oh, wait, I, I'm being funny. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm being funny, and maybe that's something I can use in that workshop. Where did you go from there? I imagine at first the—I don't know. I just imagine there was a trajectory of, of growth from the first moment you thought, oh, what if I, what if I try this to where, how you practice it now? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't— I I don't think that the next thing I tried to do was try to write something funny. But I do think that what what the class responded, I mean, so there was also something else that happened there, which was I realized that you could have an intention for something, but that the thing could be doing something different. And that that was maybe more important than what you had intended. So, and I mean, I say that because this is something I try to impart to my students, you know, like the creative writing students I have, because right now there's a, a kind of larger renegotiation going on about how the workshop should work. And, you know, one of the, the strongest more contemporary ideas is that people who write a piece should be able to speak during the workshop, right? Um, and this is sort of thinking about power and dynamics like that. But I think one of the things that's not great about that is that sometimes people will have a stubborn idea about what they want to do, but in some ways it may be that that's not A, the best thing they could do, or B, like what the world would be interested in. 
in some ways. But anyway, the point is, um, I think what I seized on was, you know, one that, you know, like I said, that something could be doing something very different from what you'd intended and that there would be a way to try to fight that or there would be a way to sort of embrace it. But another thing was like, what people kind of found funny were these very specific descriptions of different feelings or different phenomena. And so while I don't think I set about to write anything that was, you know, I I, I didn't like say like, oh, I'm just going to turn everything into like a comic piece. I definitely zeroed in on trying to be very descriptive about, you know, like the sort of the the sort of like the characters I was writing about, Asali Solomon, was like just this extremely observant, sensitive person. But a lot of the observations in some of these things were kind of funny by virtue of how how like minutely observed they were. And I think that that's like something people talk about sometimes when they talk about the kind of writing that I do in describing like clashes of class or, you know, different kinds of um, just like social phenomena, you know, just like very specific details. And so I think the thing that I went on to duplicate after writing that was like a kind of very close and sensitive observation that, you know, that I think the, the class kind of found funny. But I will also say that much later, I realized that like, I mean, as a writer, you don't know what you're doing for a really long time. (laughs) You know, it's like you throw this at the wall and somebody's like, that's great. And you throw that at the wall and they're like, that's terrible. And you feel like you're doing the exact same thing, but you don't really know for a long time what's happening. So I think this is the best way I can describe what happened, but I don't really know. (laughs) I just remember thinking that I wasn't sad that they were laughing and that the best thing you could do with a piece of fiction was actually to make somebody laugh. And I still think that's true. I'm so excited that this is what you wanted to talk about because it is not what I expected. I just was, uh, I just was rereading the days of Africa and I'm so excited that you want to talk about humor because it is a book that has a lot of humor in it, but these are not people generally speaking in a funny situation. Um, although maybe you would disagree with that. And I, I, I would love to hear how you thought about bringing this sensibility into that novel. So I think anything is a funny situation. Pretty much. I mean, I think <laughs> I think that um, you know, there's there are things that certainly like today they're not funny. You know, maybe in 15 years we might figure out a way, but humor not in a way of and by that I mean like there are a lot of serious situations that humor doesn't reduce the seriousness or tragedy of any situation, right? Or it doesn't have to. It can, right? That's the way a lot of people use humor in ways that's, you know, damaging and hurtful. But what humor can also do is just be a way of further understanding something, right? Or 
you know, or a way of living with something, right? A way of learning to live with something. So I think that like the, the people in the book all certainly use humor as a coping mechanism. And then humor, it can also be a coping mechanism for, in a way, for readers, right? Trying to navigate certain kinds of situations in a way that will be, you know, I mean, I think like, I've certainly read a lot of books that the sadness of it was like, um, was, was also instructive, you know, it was like really important, you know, it wasn't just, it didn't feel gratuitous, you know, like, um, I think, I feel like, I mean, I've read a lot of sad books, but I think sometimes about the book, Find Balance. And I think <laughs> I was like, uh, maybe one of the saddest books that, I've ever read. And I don't know that book. Will you tell me a little bit about that book? I don't know it. So it's set in India and one of the, during this pr- particular political crisis and it results. So it's about these two tailors who go around the country um, making their living and a lot happens. It's a very long book, but towards the end, because of this particular political crisis that India is having this political, um, this particular thing that's happening um they're forcibly castrated and like at the end of the book they're just kind of like they've lost you know they've they had gotten a little then they lost more they lost everything they have each other they're just going around one of them is artificially swollen because of this forcible castration and they're just like oh on to the next day and like the funny thing about it is that like that ending is not funny at all. It's really tragic, but because of the way that it's not dramatically kind of wallowing, it makes it even more terrifyingly sad. And I think sometimes that's what humor is doing. Like, I think it's like, but at the end of the day, I think that for me, it's a way of getting at every kind of experience just like, it's, it's a, it's just the way I think about how to approach like almost any kind of experience. To me, one of the places where, well, actually I was going to say one of the places where humor felt like it lived the most to me in the days of Afrikiti was in the character of Lizelle's mother. Oh yeah. Um, who in some ways is, Maybe maybe it's just that she made me laugh the most, but in a way, I also think she's she seems to be making herself laugh the most of anybody in the book. Yeah. Um, and and I want like and I I guess I'm curious to know, technically speaking, if you think about humor in a book like this as being sort of spread out amongst the characters, like there is a character whose job it is to inject humor when it's needed or if you're thinking about each character even even the ones who are maybe more more sober as working with humor in their own particular ways i think that all of them i think that all of them are funny in different ways i think that and i think that you know it's like different people find different things funny um 
And in a way, even if they're not necessarily funny, I f- they're all kind of amusing to me in their way. Verity mm-hmm. is... Um, also, I love fun. that you called her Verity. Like she's just, you know, like there's something yeah. so... She is... This, what makes her funny is that she's the only one saying saying shit straight most of the time in the room. Well, the thing about Verity, though, that's also interesting is that she... You know, of a lot of the characters, she's had, I mean, not discounting, you know, Selena's sort of lifelong struggles with mental illness, but Verity's had the hardest of all the characters, right, in some ways. Um, And so that, there's something about that that's important, you know, that she's the most likely to, like, sort of be putting on a kind of vicious stand-up routine, you know. Um, And so I think that... um, a funny thing about that character is that, um, you know, in some ways she's, she's kind of archetypal, you know, a kind of, you know, she's a single black mom. She's kind of no nonsense, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but she's <laughs> like sort of more than not. I was picturing Jennifer Lewis on blackish. I think <laughs> Jennifer Lewis. <laughs> the grandmother of like I think Jennifer Lewis is so funny so I mean she's the only character who I was like you know if this is going to be a movie like that's what I would want to happen um but just also like not but not a cliche you know but in some ways I kind of I kind of archetype but I just I mean I like her because she's very uh like like you said she says she says shit straight, right? And that is a huge part of what humor is anyway, which is in some ways why I think she seems like a comic character. Like that's that's often what people are doing with humor is like actually not embellishing something, but trying to look at it straight on. Um, another really, two other books that I think about as having extremely... Actually, the the books that I think of that are the funniest are often the ones that are like the most upsetting and tragic, right? Or combine both. Like what? So there's a couple. So there's um, The Book of Night Women by Marlon James, which is the novel he wrote before um, A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is about uh, late, it's about the early 19th century on a plantation in Jamaica. And it's like one of the most gruesome, violent books you'll ever read. It it turns out to be about a slave uprising. But it's like the point of view of the enslaved people, there's like a sort of omniscient narrator, um, is like comic all the way through and through. And then there's this like one moment when the, the omniscient narrator breaks down Christianity and how ridiculous it is to the sort of Africans who are learning about it. And it's this whole thing about how they put a baby in a bush and the baby gets killed and then they're really happy. And it's just like this retelling, like, you know, the baby gets killed, but the baby is also God, but the baby is God's son. And like, that is like, to me, like a kind of gold standard of like a kind of hilarity. Another book that comes to mind is, um, and I hate this because I'm going to mess up the title of it, even though I love her and she's my mentor, Elizabeth McCracken's memoir about her stillborn baby. 
um, which obviously is one of the most devastating things she'll ever read, but it has these moments in here, you know, like she and her husband have just found out what's happening. You know, she's still carrying the baby. They're walking somewhere and a black cat crosses their path. And he says, you're a bit late, mate, or something like that. <laughs> right? You laughed. It's like, but this is, this is kind of like, this is the way I think about how these things should work. How did you conceive of that balancing act, say, within the days of Afrikiti, within this this book? Because on the one hand, you have, right, like really, really hard, really tragic things. You have a marriage that is not in good shape. You have a family that is in a kind of precarity. You have this lost love. You have, and, you know, one of the characters is dealing with a lifetime of somewhat debilitating mental illness, right? There's like quite a lot of sadness there um, that the humor is balancing maybe or that the humor is infusing. And I'd love to hear you talk about how you thought of how you thought about that, that mingling as you were working on it. Yeah. So to be honest, these are not things I think about in the way that you articulated them. Um, I think about it because I don't know what other people are going to find funny necessarily. The only thing I do is I sort of like, I'm writing through things and when something comes up, that maybe if I could sharpen it would might maybe be funnier, then I'll do that. But I don't, but it's like the things that bubble up as humor, I'm not necessarily intentionally doing that, right? I mean, there are moments when it's clear that characters are amusing each other. And that, you know, that's something I'll do kind of intentionally. But a lot of the humor that is is written into the, that's in the things that I write is in a lot of ways, no more intentional than it was when I wrote that thing about that girl who walks down the block and feels lonely. It's like on the other end of that, I'm like tinkering with it to make it, you know, but like I said, like when I'm doing that, it's kind of like, I'm making it often what I'm doing is making it sharper, just generally like sharp, more sharply observed, more specific, more this, more that. And then it's funny because that's what funny is, but it's, I don't like, I never think about this as like a, a balance. And since, and since I think that humor belongs everywhere, I don't necessarily think about like, Oh, I'm balancing these sad things with, uh, this, these humorous things. And, you know, I think that the, the other, the other book that I talk about every, every time I do something is this book, Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. So Gwendolyn Brooks is a poet. Um, she wrote one novel. Um, it's called Maud Martha. And it's about this, working class black woman who lives in Chicago. And it really is like a series of vignettes about her life. 
And like her life is like entirely unremarkable in a kind of statistical or historical way. It's like, you know, just in the era just before World War II and then World War II happens, but she gets married. She has a baby. She's like vaguely dissatisfied with her life. And that's the plot, you know. And like, but there's this really good quote in there about tragedy, which is like, if you had one good tragedy in your life, then you were doing really well or something like that. And I think like that worldview is kind of the way I approach a lot of the stuff that I write about. There's something also about that passage, which is trying to, I don't know, I think a lot about like, the problems of the characters that I'm writing about versus what I think of are is like really, really intractable problems. Like they, you know, I mean, Selena definitely has a hard time, you know, and like no one wants to get indicted, but like versus living for years in a refugee camp, you know, like I, I've never written about anything like that. And so there's a sense that while I'm clearly invested in the problems of the characters that I write about, I'm always sort of aware that like there are worse, <laughs> much worse problems than some of the, you know, some of the things other people are contending with. Um, and that will, I mean, that might change, you know, I may go to thinking about um, other kinds of problems that I have to sort of, imagine completely in a way but i just think that like in terms of a story like this there's also that context you know yeah yeah i mean that makes sense the thing i want to ask you about next is um like the function of what your relationship is to the the unconscious or the semi or the things that you're only half aware of as a writer, because the story you told is about this thing that that is in your writing that you're in a kind of relationship with, but not necessarily always exerting conscious, direct force over in your writing. And you're mm -hmm. also a teacher of writing. Like, how do you talk to your students about how to have a relationship with that thing in your writing that that is is only half half seen to you sometimes yeah i mean i think a lot about this kind of recently and probably in relationship with trying to talk to the students like the things that i just didn't know for years um and then the things that it's not your job to know um i mean i think because you always want to be writing in a way that you're that's a process of discovery so you don't know what's gonna you know there are a lot of things like when people talk about things like outlines you know I don't do anything like that um I write from a place of okay this this little nugget of a scene interests me so I'm going to write it and in that way I will know what happens in the scene and like I know very little about something when I sat down to write it usually I just have an image no, I mean, there's probably some good analogies for it. What just occurred to me as I was thinking about, uh, you know, if you're, and I don't know anything about this personally, but if you're trying to like navigate a boat, right? Like you in some ways know very little about 
like the ocean, the river, what's going on there? You know, you don't, there's, and there's only so much you need to know about it, right? In order to keep moving, right? Like you have your mind on certain discrete and specific sort of controls. And then the rest is sort of like, you don't, you just don't even need to know about it. Like probably if you tried to control it more forcibly, you would get yourself in a bad situation. And so I think that like, there's kind of a lot of, uh, you know, I think there has to be like a sort of delicate balance between like what you're trying to control and what you're just letting happen. And I mean, all this sounds like, can sound a little bit like nonsense, but it's kind of true. You know, I mean, I think people have said that you writing as a kind of, and I'm, this is sad because this is probably somebody super famous said this and I should know who to attribute it to, but it's conscious dreaming. Um, and sometimes I tell, I try to tell the students, like the students, <laughs> sometimes the students will write kind of like out and out, just not fantasy, the genre, but just fantasies, <laughs> you know, like fiction. I'm like, no, <laughs> like the distinction here is that you're not controlling everything to make it go in a certain direction. That's fantasy little f, right? You want to write something that's more like a dream. Like, you know what's happening, you're in it, but you're not controlling it, you know? And, you know, and that's sort of in the composing process. As you get to revising or editing, then it gets into more of like being more thoughtful about what's happening or what you're saying or that kind of thing. But a lot of it is sort of trying to follow, trying to be a little bit on a lag behind your dreaming mind and transcribe it, right? Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavard of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.